And welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast. So uh, I'm Chris, and uh, joining me as always is Shane. I'm not, I don't know why, I feel like I, it's because it says I'm the host, right? So I'm like taking on the host role. But it's working. Uh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually, it was actually your concept to, to be doing it this time, the first time we did it eight years ago. I suppose that that originated with me. But uh, what's the topic uh, for this podcast, Shane? What are we doing on this one? Well, we're, it's the first of probably two parts, um, although we never really know how many parts because we never really know how long we're going to talk for. But um, <laughs> we're going to talk about getting started in astronomy, and I think we're going to try to focus it into two different parts. Yeah. Uh, one part is just buying that first telescope and associated gear, um, you know, eyepieces or diagonals or whatever might be required. Um, and then part two will be, now you got your stuff, what are you going to do with it? Uh, and, and we're going to learn about the night sky and just uh, how you actually find things uh, to look at. Yeah, that sounds good. So we, we basically do not plan these. Uh, these are conversations that we often have or um, conversations that we, that we end up having because in the moment, um, often you're speaking at my class or we're doing outreach together and we are, we are literally uh, live on a stage somewhere and we're getting questions about like, how do I get started in astronomy? And you and I have to do this uh, quite regularly where we're up in front of people and people are just throwing questions at us. And we have, we both have kind of slightly different takes. So already I can see you have a little bit of a different take and I have a little bit of a different take on this uh, already. So I think, I think this will be interesting. Yeah. Looking forward to it. All right. So do you want me to go? Cause I kind of, I made a little bit of a list. So take it, take it away, my friend. Right. I don't want to be, I don't want to impose my hosting uh, on you once, <laughs> once again, but uh, yeah, it's just cause we're recording it on zoom and um, I have a zoom account. So Shane joins me and it always says, Chris, you are the host. Um, so I teach introductory astron astronomy classes uh, as part of the outreach uh, and education division at the University of Regina, where, where I work in my day job in technology on psychological studies. But um, I do this and I've done this for eight or nine years now. And I've developed a, a short list and I, and I kind of tell people when they start taking my class that they can get their money back. They don't need to take my class. I do it as a, as a volunteer position. The money goes towards university to uh, keep keep things running down there, which is which is great. Um, but I tell them, you know, there's just like five or six things that you need and you need to know to get started in astronomy. You don't need to take my class. So are you ready for them? <laughs> uh, let's go. So so on my first slide, I say buy the book. And it's a physical book. I don't know that it's an e-book, but you'll see why I recommend buy the physical book. Don't buy an e-book of this. Buy Terrence Dickinson. It is called Night Watch. Yes. It contains, and you're saying yes already. Yeah, like this is just obvious, right? You go out and buy the book Night Watch by Terrence Dickinson, and it talks about equipment. It also has a basic star charts in there of the night sky. It's really neat. On one side, it has like it's really like a drawing of the night sky. It's quite pretty. On the other side, it has sort of a chart. So it gets you used to that back and forth between looking at the sky and using a chart. And then later on in, in like a later on chapter or something, he even has like pretty detailed charts, which I think contains 
either all of the Messier objects, which are deep sky objects that were discovered a few hundred years ago, uh, and most amateurs end up looking at, or, or the majority of them and several other deep sky objects, um, and all the constellations kind of marked in. So that book has pretty much, for the most part, everything that a beginner needs to know about equipment and everything that you need to, to have to get started. And it's so well done because it actually is spiral bound so that you can lay it out um, flat on a table. Um, and it's fairly robust. I've had several copies over the years. I think they've all gone missing now. I think over the years I've given them away or my students have just grabbed them thinking I was giving it away um, and that's fine. Um, but that is just uh, really what people need as the number one thing to get started to just go out and buy that book. What do yeah, you think? It, it's an excellent book. Um, like you said, it covers all of the bases. Um, it provides some basic star charts to get you going um, and identifies some of the, I don't know, uh, easier. Well, I think actually all of the constellations are in there with some of the easier objects. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's excellent. Uh, another one by Terrence Dickinson that I really, really like is uh, the Backyard Astronomer's Guide. I'm not yeah. sure if you've had an opportunity to, to go through that one. It gets a little more in depth on the gear side and yeah. some of the astrophotography processes and things like that if, if you want to go down that path, as well as visual observing too. Um, and, and when I started off, uh, that was kind of my Bible. Um, uh, I was intrigued by all of the different eyepieces and filters and mounts, and, and I didn't know what any of it meant or what, you know, what that stuff was really used for. And the Backyard Astronomer's Guide really helped. Um, and uh, similar to you, uh, my Night Watcher uh, books have all disappeared over, or Night Watch, I guess not Night Watcher. Um, uh, they've disappeared. I lend them out and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sad to not have them come back. You know, I, I know they're getting used and that's a good thing. Yeah. And like, we don't really, I mean, they're, they're great books, but you kind of get to a point after, after doing this for decades, you, you just don't really need them anymore. Uh, and that's fine. I'll probably buy more copies because I always like to have one around and like I do use them to kind of guide my, my instruction to, to people that take my course or like when we're out doing outreach. But yeah, I think the last time I, I had a copy, I think I took it to an outreach event we were doing and it, and it never made it back. But like, I really hope somebody did take it and that that person, uh, it did foster some sort of additional interest in, a, in astronomy for them and, and I'm fine. I think the book now retails for like $30 or $35 when I first started doing this um, and buying it. I think you get it for like $16 or $19.99. I remember it went to $19.99. I bought a copy at uh, Costco or something like that. And now, now it's almost twice the cost, but um, definitely, definitely worth buying Night Watch by Terrence Dickinson. So number two, ready for it? I'm ready. All right. Second thing you need is you need to make a red flashlight. <laughs> like, holy crap. You need to go <laughs> and make a red flashlight to use your night watch under the stars. And you can do this very easy now. Now, back in the day, they would say to do one of two things. They would say, well, you can get a flashlight and paint it red with nail polish. When I don't like the smell of nail polish. Um, or you can get like uh, some red cellophane. And I've bought red cellophane, but it always seems to be like purple or some other weird color when you put it on. The best thing I found, and this is super easy, is you just get red duct tape. Because A, you can get this at Canadian Tire or any kind of Rona, Lowe's, like you name it. Uh, any kind of uh, hardware store has red duct tape now. Um, I don't know what it's used for usually, but people are using it for something. And you just put two or three layers over the end of your light and then 
you're off to the races. And the great thing about it is that unlike the red nail polish, like basically red nail polish, you are destroying that light. Like you are only gonna be able to use it for astronomy. But the, but the red duct tape, you can peel it off, um, you know, and it really comes off pretty easy. Um, so you haven't like written off that flashlight. And then uh, you can use it for other things. I've even done that observing when I didn't have a white light and I lost something at the end of the session. I peel the red duct tape off and, and I go, now we have dedicated red LED lights, but they run like 25 or $35 sometimes. Not really necessary until you really get into this. And for secondary lights, I think uh, mostly we, just, we do just use those, uh, those lights with the red duct tape. Like I, that's what I put in my tent. Uh, my wife is in there reading. Now there, people will say, well, there's like blue leak and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. But uh, at the same time, um, yeah, we, uh, we just really use the, the red LEDs or uh, for beginners, I think people getting into it, just using the red duct tape is probably, probably all you're gonna, gonna need for, for a light. So why is that? Why do we use red light, Shane? Uh, I was about to ask you that. <laughs> um, yeah. So when you're out in truly dark skies, um, it takes your eyes some time to adapt to the dark. And an example I like to use is if you're in your house and all the lights are on and all of a sudden you go into a dark or into a room without a window, if you close the door and turn off the lights, you can't see anything for the, at least the first, I don't know, 30 to 60 seconds, but then your eyes slowly adapt and they're able to pull in some faint light and, and you can start to discern you know, some of your surroundings. Now, when you're out under a dark sky for astronomy, it takes your eyes about 30, mil 30 minutes to fully adapt to the darkness. Um, one flash of white light will ruin that and you start that 30 minute countdown all over again. Um, red light doesn't impact the eye the same way and it helps preserve your night vision a lot better. So astronomers all around uh, will use red lights and may get a little upset if you're not using a red light. Um, and one of the things I love about your suggestion of the uh, red duct tape is you can really dial down the brightness even of the red because a lot of like flashlights you'll buy, you know, at your local hardware store, um, even if you put some red cellophane or nail polish over it, it's still going to probably be too bright even though it's red. Uh, so the nice thing with that duct tape is you just keep layering it on to diminish some of that brightness. And, and really when your eyes are dark adapted and, and you're, um, you know, you've been outside for a while, you'd be surprised how much you can see. You, you don't even really need light for the most part, no. unless you're reading a star chart or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and it's really great because, because I will bring it into my astronomy classes and then it's, it's awesome when like when 99% of the people come in, in fact, I can't remember the last time someone came up with a white light and it's great. Like people show up for our observing session and everybody already has the red flashlight made up. Um, and it just really makes like a better experience and uh, you know, Mike doesn't get upset and you know, <laughs> so that kind of thing. But yeah, make that little red flashlight, um, you know, it'd be great. Like if like one thing we can do if, if we get some web space here is I can just kind of show one of the many ones that I've made up. I, what I do is I buy packs. You can buy packs of like four, eight or 10 of those that look like tiny little mag lights, but they're super cheap and they take a two or four double or triple A batteries or something like that. And I just load them in, take them to class or sometimes I don't, I think the batteries have all gone 
gone dead on me, but I bring them in and just give them out to people. I'm like, you can make one or you can just, you can take one, like literally just, just take one from me. And uh, cause this is so important. So, and it's great. And I've even like gone down to grasslands and people show up with them there. And it's really neat because people are like, you know, they feel like they're kind of in, they feel like they're, they're in the club, so to speak. Right. Cause they've shown up and they know this and they know that this is like the most important thing is not to flash amateur astronomers with white lights. So, yeah. So number three, ready for number three. I'm, I'm buckled in. I'm ready. <laughs> so, uh, get a decent pair of binoculars. Yes. That's love it. Love it. You got to do it. So, um, there's, there's two different types or I guess two different brands or makes or models that, that I recommend. Um, certainly you can use whatever you have, but the two that I recommend for my class are the, uh, they're called the Pentax WP. Um, and I think they're now up to like the WP four or something like that. Um, but they're uh, JS class six waterproof binocular and eight by 40 is what I recommend. Nikon uh, make uh, an eight by 40 as well. They make it in two versions. They make it in a, what's called an Aculon, um, which is good if you don't wear glasses and they make it in something called an action extreme uh, for those that do wear glasses. And my understanding is they actually both perform uh, pretty well. I actually, um, we'll tell you about the difference between these two models and why I recommend these two, what might seem like almost identical models. So the Pentax um, perhaps has slightly sharper optics and it is a little bit tougher in build. So it can take um, a little bit more abuse. Um, so the downside is it has a slightly smaller field of view than the Nikon. The Nikon has some softness in the field, some, um, but uh, I feel that it mostly minds can accommodate and can be focused out, but the Nikons have uh, larger fields of view. So I really like having a big field of view. And it's funny because I tell people all this, I'm like, like I own the Nikons, um, but you know, I like to do astronomy. So the wide field is, it is what matters most to me for doing astronomy anyway. And the Nikon, I think is just a hair lighter too. So I know I can, can hold it up for a little bit longer time. Uh, but the Pentax being slightly sharper and people wanting to use them for other purposes, uh, they tend to uh, sort of drift towards maybe that, that slightly, perhaps imperceptible, uh, higher quality, though, though maybe minimally smaller uh, field of view. So anyway, those are my recommendations. I know that in the past, people used to recommend 10 by, 10 by 50s, um, which personally I think for most people are too big and the two numbers on them, maybe I'll explain those. Maybe I'll let you, what do the two numbers, eight by 40, 10 by 50, what do these numbers mean, Shane? So the, the first number is your magnification. So eight by 40, it would be eight times magnification. Uh, 40 represents the size of the, like the front glass, the objectives. So they're 40 millimeters in diameter. Um, the, and I guess I'll explain a little bit why each are kind of important. Um, anything eight times, magnification and lower is usually uh, easier to hold in your hand without, um, without too much kind of movement uh, in the field of view. Because um, when you're looking at stars, any little shakes that you have in your hand really become noticeable, more, way more noticeable than when you're looking at uh, terrestrial objects like birds or, you know, landscapes or whatever. Yeah. Um, so as soon as you start creeping over that eight times, you're almost going to need a, either a tripod or like image stabilization built into the binocular, which really drives up the cost. 
So that's why we usually say stay below eight, you know, eight or less. Uh, now, 40 millimeter is really starting to talk about the light gathering abilities, but also the physical size of the binocular. And a 40 millimeter just seems to fit a lot of people's hands nicely. And the weight of them is also, you know, a, a very comfortable weight to hold up and, and look at the stars. Uh, so they are really the kind of the ultimate size of binocular for uh, astronomy. I did start with a pair of 10 by 50s when I got into the hobby because that was what was recommended. Um, and I, I did need a tripod for them. I just felt they were too shaky in my hand when I was trying to look at the stars. Yeah, and I'll say this, I also did receive a, a pair of 10 by 50s as my first binocular. I actually used them so much. They were, they were a Bushnell um, and they weren't inexpensive. They were um, one specifically designed for eyeglass wearers, which I am and uh reasonably heavy they're rubberized and i use them so much they eventually like they fell apart just just from overuse so they're still down at my at my parents place but uh but i agree like even as and i used to be a like a weightlifter and everything and even in those days i ended up buying a tripod i was like you know a late teen who was really fit and i found the 10 by 50s just too heavy and too shaky and I bought a tripod. So that's where my mind has gone with these, um, especially when people are starting out. Um, and a 10 by 50 is a substantial binocular. It's like, can you use it without a tripod? You can, but it's, I think it's just too big, too heavy. You might as well buy the eight by 40 and then buy a larger binocular if, if you end up loving binoculars so much, which many people do. Um, and then get a tripod or a special mount for that or something like that. But I think getting the smaller, lower power, slightly smaller objective size. And to be honest, I don't think many people could tell the difference if you handed them um, an eight by 40 or something like that. And like a 10 by 50, I, I don't know that a beginner is really going to be capable of seeing the difference that much. It's a significant jump, but it's just not that huge. And, uh, and the ability to hold it for so much longer. Like I would say I can hold the 10 by 50 for a few minutes. Um, I can hold the eight by 40 for about five minutes, but I actually use the seven by 35s and I can like sit in a chair and hold them for like 10 minutes. You know, it's awesome to be able to look at a magnified sky for, for that period of time. So how much more are you seeing in the 10 by 50? You can only hold for a couple minutes versus uh, a smaller optic. Uh, that you can hold for, you know, uh, many times as long. So that's sort of my, my rationale. I know what you think about that, Shane. Yeah, no, great advice. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I sold the 10 by 50s and I don't really use anything that large anymore just because of the, the comfort factor. I'd much rather have a nice field of view that's just comfortable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, you know, to buy a really good 10 by 50, you're getting into more money. Um, but to get a really good seven by 35 or, or eight by 40 or something in that range. Um, there's a lot of really high end optics out there. Like if you do want to get, get beyond these. Now these binoculars will run you in around the $150 Canadian range, uh, a little bit less for American funds to the South. But uh, anyway, that, those are, those are my recommendations. And of course uh, other people make different recommendations. That's fine. These are the ones that I've found really worked. And I would say, I don't think anybody in my classes have ever bought the Nikons. 
everybody has all bought the Pentax, despite the fact that I say the Nikons are the ones that I use, it shows what kind of ringing endorsements uh, I'm able to give. So future sponsors be aware. So, all right. Number four, any more, any more comments on binoculars? Yeah, maybe just one. Sure. Um, now, I think when people think of getting into astronomy, they think of telescopes and eyepieces and cameras. Um, but binoculars should not be uh, forgotten about. Um, there's many nights where uh, Chris and I and another one of our observing buddies, Mike, uh, we go down to Grasslands National Park, which is a, about two and a half to three hour drive from our homes. Uh, we pack telescopes. Uh, and all kinds of gear. And there's some nights that we don't take the telescopes out of our vehicles. You know, we just use binoculars uh, because they provide such a wide field of view and it's such a different experience looking at the night sky with binoculars. They really are uh, an awesome tool to have. And I can say that when I was learning the night sky, having a pair of binoculars was really helpful in finding some Messier objects and, you know, some of the brighter NGC stuff that's out there. Uh, because with the binoculars, you know, you could look at the area of the sky where this object was and you would see a, like a faint fuzzy thing in the field of view to give you a little bit of an idea of where that object truly was. And then I would point my telescope there and sure enough, I'd find it. Um, so I just wanted to chime in with kind of the use case for binoculars a little bit. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, one of the things that people may not think of too much is uh, you know, like we've talked a lot about refractors and that because we own lots of refractors between the two of us. Uh, we own other telescopes too. That's just what we're talking about these days. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're looking at the um, at the refractor, of course, uh, you're going to get, uh, you know, mirror reversed images because you're using diagonal mirrors in them. Uh, you know, and different types of telescopes will invert or reverse the images. Uh, and people don't understand how disorienting that can be for beginners. But with binoculars, everything's uh, correct image, right side up. Uh, you know, you move left, things go left. Um, so they're much more intuitive for people to use. People often have already used binoculars in their life, uh, strangely enough. So it, it's a piece of equipment they're already familiar with. Whereas the telescope, I think a lot of the time people think, and no matter what technologies come out or go-tos or electronic drives, um, there remains uh, a bit of a challenge to actually uh, setting it up and then know what you're looking at, know how to point it, know how to navigate the sky. Um, it, it's just not as intuitive, I think, as uh, maybe people really want it to be, unfortunately. So the binoculars really help stem the bridge between uh, what you can see with your eye and then what you will be able to see through a telescope and allow you to uh, sort of... Uh, maybe ease up on that learning curve uh, a little bit more than if you just jump straight to a telescope and then became frustrated and, and quit. So, all right, number four. Yes. All right, number four is, uh, and I use this website a lot, but skymaps.com, at the start of each month, they have star charts you can go and download. And my recommendation is that people should go and do this. Um, now that website, I have no affiliation with them. They sell books and posters and all kinds of other stuff, but they're like a free educational resource that you can use for uh, educational purposes. Um, and it's perfect for my class. Uh, so I download those, I hand them out my class. There's no cost for, for doing any of that. And uh, you know, uh, people wanna buy stuff on that website, it's up to you, but they make these great little charts. And the thing that they do, they do this one thing really, really well, is they talk about where the moon is in particular relation to stars, constellations, planets. 
and it allows you to use the moon to guide you through the nighttime sky. So what you can do is, uh, so on such and such a night, you'll see that it will say, uh, maybe the moon is gonna be near uh, Betelgeuse or just above Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse was dimming back this winter, so it was great. There was a night where the moon was gonna be uh, reasonably close to it, or it was gonna be the brightest, Betelgeuse is gonna be the brightest star near the moon. And so I was able to say, okay, on this night, you're gonna go out and people wanna see this because they've heard it in the media, and you can use that moon to guide you. And, and every night or a few nights, the moon is going to be maybe near Venus, like it was last week, or near Jupiter in the morning sky, like it's going to be coming up soon. So you can use it to help identify these different things. Now, when the moon is up, of course, it's going to wash out the sky a little bit. So if it's a full moon, it might wash out the sky, but it might be near something of interest. Uh, and of course, when the moon is full or getting close to full, um, it's going to put more light into the sky. And typically, that's a time when amateur astronomers aren't going out to do astronomy, but as beginners, I encourage them to go out at these times to identify uh, these things that skymaps.com has, has highlighted. And then um, what you can do is on subsequent nights when the moon is out of that area of the sky, or maybe it's not in the sky at all, you can kind of go back and you'll be somewhat oriented. Maybe you'll remember this or that, or you'll know that the bright star in the, uh, in the Western sky in the evening at least is, is Venus, because you knew that three nights ago or whenever it was, um, the moon was beside Venus and you were able to identify it and you'll gradually be able to, to build up a little bit of a repertoire of stars, planets, constellations. And it's great because throughout the seasons, uh, sort of each season in the evening, you're going to have a, a different set of stars. So it really helps kind of build that continuity between uh, this object that everybody's familiar with the moon, um, with some of these other things that are, that are going on up there. So any comments on that, Shane? No, I, you know, I, I really don't have anything to add other than, you know, maybe a topic for a future podcast. Um, but, you know, like apps and planetarium software, you know, I use more of that stuff to plan my observing sessions. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe not, maybe not ideal for the beginner right now. We can talk about that, like I say, in another episode. Yeah, well, actually, I think you make, make a good point because I do, I do get this quite a bit where I get people showing up. Uh, and you and I have had that as well. We're out in the, the Grasslands National Park where we do some, some outreach with the, the great staff out there and, and other places. And uh, we'll get people that walk up and they'll say, hey, I have this app, but it doesn't really work or I'm having trouble with it. And, and that's so frequent because you have to put in different settings and everything like your latitude and longitude. Sometimes you have to orientate it or or it's just so uh, obtuse to them because they're looking at um, where the stars are and everything. And it is a little bit different. Um, and the one thing I have found, like, and I have a fair bit of experience in this astronomy business at this point, um, is uh, an issue of scale. Yes. Okay. And when you buy a physical star chart, so let's just even use the star charts from Nightwatch as a great example. So they are actually scaled to make it easy for you to navigate the nighttime sky. And this is something that most people don't realize, even, and, and I have seldom seen this, even spoken about in amateur circles, but um, what they do is they're placing those constellations at a set distance. So under the nighttime sky, your eye will come to focus at a certain, at a certain point, more or less, everybody's a little bit different, um, but your fist at arm's length is about 10 degrees. And so what they're trying to do is sort of take, in a way like that average distance to the page, um, and then kind of represent the sky as you would see it by going back and forth from that page to the nighttime sky. And so that's why it's much easier to use a physical book like Nightwatch and your red flashlight 
or print off a map from skymaps.com or, or use both is what I would recommend. Um, and then when you're out there, you know that you're using the right scale. But sometimes I find like people with the software would be like zoomed way in or they zoom way out. And I've even taken software out on the nighttime sky and struggled with that aspect of it myself. That can be uh, a bit of a challenge. Now, if you're trying to get something to point or some sort of go tool, well, that might be one use case. But um, for the most part, uh, for a beginner, I do not recommend using uh, using the software. And we just really use it for planning sessions or when I'm building slides for my class or a presentation or something. That's really how I use the software. Um, but that's a little bit more advanced. Like if you're just trying to learn the nighttime sky, it could be helpful. Um, and I'm not knocking the software. I think it's great to have it. I think people definitely, and I have my own recommendations, which is fine. Uh, but actually using it on the nighttime sky. And one of the main reasons why it comes back to the red light and using a physical book is that these screens are too bright. Even on the dimmest setting, yep. you are going to be blowing away your night vision um, so that it will be more difficult to move from looking at a screen to the nighttime sky because your vision is going to be all washed out. So it's going to be hard to see those stars. And I remember I took out a computer and I set it to red mode. And people say, well, just send it to red mode. Look, there's a night mode. And the night mode seems really dim when you're like in the classroom under the fluorescent lights or whatever. But once you actually get somewhere that's dark enough to actually be identifying stars and planets and constellations and all this stuff, um, especially at a, at a dark sky preserve like grasslands, it's super difficult to actually go back and forth. And you just keep dimming it down, dimming it down, and then eventually you can't see it. So in order to have it bright enough to see it at all, it's still too bright. Um, and it's still going to impact your night vision way too much so that you're going to have trouble uh, kind of going back and forth to the nighttime sky from it. Now, inside and when you're planning or you're trying to maybe simulate the nighttime sky or, or you know, especially to plan a session, it's extremely useful. But that's kind of how I use it anyway. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Shane. Yeah, yeah, no, that's all valid. And yeah, I use it in a similar way too. I never take out anything digital into the field. Um, it's always paper, you know, uh, to avoid the brightness of screens, but I do enjoy some of the software for planning a session. So yeah. if we're going to grasslands or I'm, you know, going to spend some time outside, yeah. uh, sometimes I'll, I'll look at the uh, software to, again, just help plan, uh, some objects that I want to look at. Right. Or like, where's that bright comet or like, yeah. you know, stuff like that. It's super, super handy. And yeah. like, I'm almost always running my, my astronomy software in the background somewhere. Like, you know, I really, I'm just going to say like, I like Sky Safari. I'm a paid for user. I've used it for years. It's been, it's been really good for the most part. Um, and I use it for my classes as, as well. So, yeah. So I'm going to kind of stop my list there, Shane, because at, at the start you mentioned uh, a couple things like maybe about first telescopes or diagonals and, and mounts and that sort of thing. I didn't know if you wanted to, to say a few things about, about first telescopes. Sure. Um, you know, my first telescope, uh, I bought from winners. <laughs> so not a telescope store and, Oh, I don't even know what brand it was, but Did it you was buy, like some khakis to match it or something like that. <laughs> I should have. Um, it was a, I don't know, a little three inch reflector on a really shaky tripod with strange motions and crappy eyepieces. Um, and I got a, a partial view of the moon one night with it, but even like getting this thing aligned to look at the moon was next to impossible. So that turned me off for a little while. Um, 
And then when I got a little more serious later in life, uh, I did a lot of research and a lot of that research pointed me towards getting an eight inch Dobsonian reflector. Um, there's a lot of good ones out there. Uh, Skywatcher, Orion, um, I think maybe Mead makes one too, but anyway, there's lots of them out there. And, um, you know, that was a pretty good start for me. Uh, I don't know how far I should go down this path. Um, you know, I guess part of it is make sure you're buying just a, a good quality telescope, typically from a telescope store, you know, is what we would recommend. Yeah. Um, if I was to think about it all over again, you know, one caveat that seems to be missing in a lot of the literature uh, is like just the size of a telescope, how that should be a consideration for you too. Um, I have a pretty good story on telescope. In fact, about buying my first telescope. Okay. Well, let's hear it. So, so when I was a kid, my uncle bought me a, I believe it was a one inch Tasco. All right. So that was my first telescope and I was about maybe seven. Okay. And man, I was so excited. Okay. So, so I'm pretty sure that I'm going to look through this thing. I'm going to look at a star. I'm going to pick the brightest star in the sky because that's what you want to do. Right. And so I'm going to look at this. I'm going to probably see planets going around it, probably aliens buzzing it with, uh, with their saucers or whatever. And so Malcolm like helped me kind of get it lined up on a star, which I now know is Cirrus. And, uh, and I look in, I'm like, wow, it actually doesn't look as good through the telescope as it did to my eye. So it was pretty disappointing because it was kind of flaring a bit because this Tasco wasn't a very good Tasco, even though it was what we'd consider maybe a classic telescope now. It really was very, very poor quality one and probably had plastic lenses. So there was all this extra color and then um, it just seemed bigger. I could see a few more stars, but it really, it really just kind of, kind of brought the sky a little bit closer. But it didn't really give me an appreciable view of of the universe that uh, that I was really hoping to get. So, so I was kind of disappointed. So, like you, then it was like a number of years later, I, the, this interest kind of percolated, and I eventually went out and bought a, I bought an eight inch f six, but. The road to that was was a very bumpy one. Like you said, you should buy from a telescope store. Now, most of the time now we're buying online. And back in these days, these were earlier days of the internet. And I had looked at them online, but it was still back when you would order like a catalog. And for the most part, you were you were gonna have to, you know, probably go to a telescope store to to pick one up. Um, and the nearest telescope stores to me were down in the States. And at that time, they would not ship telescopes over the border for whatever reason. I, I can't remember. At least that's my recollection. So I remember I drove down to New Hampshire and sort of had made an arbitrary decision. I, I was, it was before I owned my own vehicle. I was you know, just a kid living at home, just sort of had gotten my driver's license a couple of years before. And I decided to, uh, to take my mother's uh, four-door sedan instead of my father's SUV. And so I went and I bought this eight inch telescope and I went out to take it and put it in the car and it wouldn't fit. It just wouldn't fit at all inside the car. And so you can imagine I'd driven like whatever it was, like 12 or 13 hours to get to this place and the telescope wouldn't get in the car. So I was so, so disappointed, but I did, I did make one. And so I had to like return it and they had to do like, like a return. And I was like, so, so sad about it. But but I actually bought at this at this telescope store. I bought um, a three-volume set of Burnham's Celestial Handbook in soft cover, 
Oh, well, that's awesome. a good thing to have. So yeah, it was it was worth the trip, but but boy, I was pretty disappointed. I get back home and I sort of had told all my friends that weren't really that into astronomy, but pretty excited somebody was going to get a pretty good sized telescope. Uh, that yeah, no, I couldn't quite get it in the car. So it was about five or six months later that I ended up buying my my eight inch uh, F six, which I think is more or less still like the de facto recommendation if people are looking to buy a telescope after they buy a night watch, make a red flashlight, start learning the sky, get a pair of binoculars. Then if they want to get a telescope, probably like the eight inch F6 uh, Dobsonian uh, would be would be the one to get. But it I, certainly I, is the most aperture for the money. Um, but, you know, people have to be aware of how big these things really are. Uh, like, like you said, it, it's hard or impossible to fit in a smaller car. Um, if you're going to do some observing in your backyard, and really the fact is most of us probably do the majority of our observing from the backyard just because of the convenience factor, uh, you often have to move a telescope around just to see, you know, between buildings or over top of trees, that type of thing. Yeah. And hauling even an eight inch uh, Dobsonian around, you know, there's some weight there. Um, so it's certainly, they're, they're great performers. They'll show you a lifetime of objects. Um, but you know, I'm starting to waver a little bit on the eight inch, uh, Dobsonian as like the de facto first telescope to get. Oh yeah. What would you, um, what would you recommend these days? Well, you know, uh, we did that episode on uh, the classic telescopes. So I'm still a big proponent of that. You know, if you can find yourself an older, uh, telescope, an older Tasco from the sixties, uh, you know, they're, they're quite capable. Um, but there's a number of uh, good performing modern acromats, uh, refractors, um, in that 80 millimeter class that you can probably get that N amount and, uh, you know, the basic set of eyepieces in and around the same amount uh, that a Dobsonian would cost you, like that 8 inch Dobsonian. Yeah. Um, and then you don't have to worry about collimation, which is like a whole nother podcast probably. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, aligning the mirrors in the Dobsonian. And uh, they pack far more compact and they're lighter to haul around the yard. So I, you know, for, for those reasons, I kind of like those telescopes a lot. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing is, is that although like, you know, this may be somewhat controversial thing to say, um, but uh, it, you can be sort of underwhelmed by the difference in size amongst telescopes. Like for example, I have a beautiful five inch apochromatic telescope. Um, and then Mark Bratton, uh, author of the Herschel objects has an 18 inch and, and I was observing beside him and we were just like astounded at how, how really how little difference there, there actually is. We're not talking about the fact that, yeah, you, you can see like a couple magnitudes fainter through an 18 inch than a five inch, but it's really just like, like really just barely two magnitudes from, you know, magnitude seven, uh, LVM limiting visual magnitude sight. Um, and under most conditions, you're not quite under those kind of uh, conditions. So it's, it's sort of surprising, you know, once you get into the realm of telescopes, how, how small the jump is. Going from naked eye to binoculars, I, I forget what it is, but the number is like astounding how big a jump it is to go from naked eye to like a 40 millimeter or 50 millimeter binocular is a massive jump. But to get that same jump, I forget what it is, but you'd have to go to like a 30 inch telescope or some sort of ridiculous number to get that same kind of, kind of boost in, uh, you know, from, from a binocular to that, 
uh, as you got from the naked eye to a binocular. Yeah. Well, for, with, you know, your naked eye under a really dark sky, uh, if your eyes are nicely dark adapted, uh, you'll see close to 2,000 objects with the naked eye. You add binoculars to that and it goes up to 10,000. Yeah. Yeah, it's just astounding. Well, maybe we should talk more about uh, like telescopes and mounts yep. and, and diagonals on, on a future show because I think we're, we're kind of starting to get a little bit long here now, Shane. So sure. with that, maybe we'll wrap up this episode, whatever it ends up being of the uh, actual astronomy podcast. Yeah, right on. Well, looking forward to the next one.